This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Patricia Highsmith's story, The Trouble with Mrs. Blinn, The Trouble with the World, which was published in The New Yorker in 2002. Elsie handed Mrs. Palmer a cup of tea with three lumps of sugar, but no scone, because Mrs. Blinn said they were too indigestible for her. Mrs. Palmer did not mind. She appreciated the sight of well-buttered scones anyway, and of healthy people like Mrs. Blaine eating them. The story was chosen by Yi Yun Lee, the author of two novels and two story collections, whose own stories have been appearing in The New Yorker since 2003. Her work was included in the magazine's 20 Under 40 issue and anthology in 2010. Hi, Yi Hi, Deborah. Now, the last time that you were on the podcast, which was in 2009, you chose a story by the Irish writer John McGarren, which was set in a small Irish town. And this story is set in a small town on the English coast. So I'm thinking there's something that draws you to this kind of setting. There is that quietness, the danger in the quiet setting that I, I, I feel drawn to, I think. Mm-hmm. They're very different stories, but there's something about this kind of stillness of small-town life. Yes. You know, apparently, I feel that we can, if you live in New York City or San Francisco, you see all these dramas of lives, but dramas within, you know, these little communities are quite fascinating to me. And much more private. Yes. (laughs) Have you been a Patricia Highsmith fan for a long time? Yes. I was thinking about this this morning. I thought, well, you know, sometimes I think I read her as guilty pleasure, but really not feeling so much guilt because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a way you read her as a crime novelist or crime writer, but you also can read her as a literary writer, and that excuses me. Mm-hmm. Well, she's she's obviously famous for writing those those crime stories or thrillers like um, Strangers on a Train and The Talented Mr. Ripley and so on. Do you think that this particular story, The Trouble with Mrs. Blinn, is in any way a thriller? I didn't read it as a thriller, mm-hmm. except I think the first reading, there was, I, I wouldn't want to give away, there was always that thought something big was going to happen with mm-hmm. Mrs. Blaine. And that was the thrill of the story. Yes, there is suspense in it, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. What, what else is it that makes this story stand out for you? You know, I think if you look at Patricia Highsmith, I think a lot of things happen in her novels. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the story, really nothing happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing happens. And well, when a writer can write a story where nothing happens and still you have to hold your breath, and I think that's, that makes it a masterful story. Well, let's now hold our breath through the reading. <laughs> and, um, now here is Yi and Lee reading The Trouble with Mrs. Blinn, The Trouble with the World by Patricia Highsmith. The trouble was Mrs. Blaine. The trouble was the world. Mrs. Palmer was dying. There was no doubt of that to her or to anyone else in the household. The household had grown from two, Mrs. Palmer and Elsie the housemaid, to four in the past ten days. Elsie's daughter Lisa, age 14, had come to help her mother and had brought their shaggy sheepdog, Princey who, to Mrs. Palmer, made a fourth presence in the house. 
Lisa spent most of her time doing things in the kitchen, and slept in the little low-ceilinged room with double-deck bunks down the steps from Mrs. Palmer's room. The cottage was small, a sitting room and dining alcove and kitchen downstairs, and upstairs Mrs. Palmer's bedroom, the room with the two bunks, and a tiny back room where Elsie slept. All the ceilings were low. And the doorways and the ceilings above the stairway even lower, so that one had to duck one's head constantly. Mrs. Palmer reflected that she would have to duck her head very few times more, as she rose only a couple of times a day, making her way, her lavender dressing gown clutched about her against the chill, to the bathroom. She had leukemia; she was not in any pain, but she was terribly weak. She was sixty-one. Her son Gregory, an officer in the RAF, was stationed in the Middle East, and perhaps would come in time, and perhaps wouldn't. Mrs. Palmer had purposely not made her telegram urgent, not wanting to upset or inconvenience him, and his telegraphed reply had simply said that he would do his best to get leave to fly to her, and would let her know when. A cowardly telegram hers had been, Mrs. Palmer thought. Why hadn't she had the courage to say outright, "I'm dying"? Why hadn't she had the courage to say outright, "I'm going to die in about a week"? Can you come to see me, Mrs. Palmer? Elsie stuck her head in the door, one floury hand resting against the door jamb. Did Mrs. Blin say four thirty or five thirty today? Mrs. Palmer did not know, and it did not seem in the least important. I think five thirty. Elsie gave a preoccupied nod, her mind on what she would serve for five thirty tea as opposed to four thirty tea. The five thirty tea could be less substantial, as Mrs. Blin would already have had tea somewhere. Anything I can get you, Mrs. Palmer? She asked in a sweet voice with a genuine concern. No, thank you, Elsie. I'm quite comfortable. Mrs. Palmer sighed as Elsie closed the door again. Elsie was willing, but unintelligent. Mrs. Palmer could not talk to her, not that she would have wanted to talk intimately to her, but it would have been nice to have the feeling that she could talk to someone in the house if she wished to. Mrs. Palmer had no close friends in the town, because she had been here only a month. She had been en route to Scotland when the weakness came on her again, and she had collapsed on the train platform in Ipswich. A long journey to Scotland by train or even airplane had been out of the question. So, on a strange doctor's recommendation, Mrs. Palmer had hired a taxi and driven to a town on the east coast called Amington, where the doctor knew there was a visiting nurse, and where the air was splendid and bracing. The doctor had evidently thought she needed only a few weeks' rest, and she would be on her feet again. But Mrs. Palmer had had a premonition that this wasn't true. She had felt better the first few days in the quiet little town. She had found a cottage called Sea Maiden and rented at once. But the spurt of energy had been brief. In Sea Maiden, she had collapsed again, and Mrs. Palmer had the feeling that Elsie. And even a few other acquaintances she had made, like Mr. Fowler, the real estate agent, resented her fabulous. 
She was not only a stranger come to trouble them, to make demands on them, but her relapse belied the salubrious power of Emington air, just now mostly gale-forced wind which swept from the northeast day and night, tearing the buttons from one's coat, plastering a sticky opaque film of salt and spray on the windows of all the houses on the seafront. Mrs. Palmer was sorry to be a burden herself, but at least she could pay for it, she thought. She had rented a rather shabby cottage that would otherwise have stayed empty all winter since it was early February now, and she was employing Elsie at slightly better than average Amington wages. She paid Mrs. Bling a guinea per half-hour visit, and most of that half-hour was taken up with her tea, and she soon would bring business to the undertaker, the sexton, and perhaps the shopkeeper who sold flowers. She had also paid her rent through March. Hearing a quick tread on the pavement, in the law in the wind's roll, Mrs. Palmer sat up a little in bed. Mrs. Blynn was arriving. An anxious frown touched Mrs. Palmer's thin-skinned forehead, but she smiled faintly, too, with beforehand politeness. She reached for the long-handled mirror that lay on her bed table. Her gray face had ceased to shock her or to make her feel shame. Age was age, death was death, and not pretty. But she still had the impulse to do what she could to look nicer for the world. She tucked some hair back into place, moistened her lips, tried a little smile, put a shoulder of her nightdress even with the other, and her pink cardigan closer about her. Her pallor made the blue of her eyes much bluer. That was a pleasant thought. Elsie knocked and opened the door at the same time. Mrs. Blaine, ma'am. Good afternoon, Mrs. Palmer, Mrs. Blaine said, coming down the two steps from the threshold into Mrs. Palmer's room. She was a full-bodied, dark blonde woman of middle height, about 45, and she wore her usual bulky, two-piece black suit with rose-colored floral paint on her left breast. She also wore a pale pink lipstick and rather high heels. Like many women in Immington, she was a sea widow and had taken up nursing after she was 40. She was highly thought of in the town as an energetic woman who did useful work. And how are you this afternoon? Good afternoon. Well, as can be expected, I think you would say, said Mrs. Palmer, with an effort at cheerfulness. Already she was loosening the covers, preparatory to pushing them back entirely for her daily injection. But Mrs. Blaine was standing with an absent smile in the center of the room, hands folded backward on her hips, surveying the walls, gazing out the window. Mrs. Blaine had once lived in the house with her husband for six months when they were first married, and every day Mrs. Blaine said something about it. Mrs. Blaine's husband had been the captain of a merchant ship and had gone down with it ten years ago in a collision with a Swedish ship only 50 nautical miles from Amington. Mrs. Blaine had never married again. Elsie said her house was filled with photographs of the captain in uniform and of his ship. Yes, it's a wonderful little house, said Mrs. Blaine, even if the wind does come in a bit. She looked at Mrs. Palmer with brighter eyes, as if she were about to say, Well now, 
a few more of these injections and you'll be as fit as can be, won't you? But in the next second, Mrs. Blaine's expression changed. She groped in her black bag for the needle and a bottle of clear fluid that would do no good. Her mouth lost its smile and drooped, and deeper lines came at its corners. By the time she plunged the needle into Mrs. Palmer's fleshless body, her bulging green-gray eyes were glossy, as if she saw nothing and did not need to see anything. This was her business, and she knew how to do it. Mrs. Palmer was an object, which paid a guinea a visit. The object was going to die. Mrs. Blaine became apathetic, as if even the cutting off of a guinea in three days or eight days mattered nothing to her either. Guineas, as such, mattered nothing to Mrs. Palmer. But in view of the fact she was soon quitting this world, she wished that Mrs. Blaine could show something so human as a desire to prolong the guineas. Mrs. Blaine's eyes remained glassy, even when she glanced at the door to see if Elsie was coming in with her tea. Occasionally, the floorboards in the hall cracked from the heat or the lack of it, and so they did when someone walked just outside the door. The injection hurt today, but Mrs. Palmer did not flinch. It was really such a small thing she smiled at the slightness of it. A little sunshine today wasn't there, Mrs. Palmer said. Was there? Mrs. Blaine jerked the needle out. Around 11 this morning, I noticed it. Weakly, she gestured toward the window behind her. We can certainly use it, Mrs. Blaine said, putting her equipment back in her bag. Goodness, we can use that fire, too. She had fastened her bag, and now she chafed her palms, huddling toward the grate. Princey was stretched, full length before the fire, looking like a rolled-up shack rug. Mrs. Palmer tried to think of something pleasant to say about Mrs. Blaine's husband, their time in this house, the town, anything. She could only think of how lonely Mrs. Blaine's life must be since her husband died. They had had no children. According to Elsie, Mrs. Blaine had worshipped her husband and took a pride in never having remarried. Have you many patients this time of year? Mrs. Palmer asked. Oh, yes, like always, Mrs. Blaine said, still facing the fire and rubbing her hands. Who? Mrs. Palmer wondered. Tell me about them. She waited, breathing softly. Elsie knocked once by bumping a corner of the tray against the door. Come in, Elsie, they both said, Mrs. Blaine a bit louder. Here we are, said Elsie, setting the tray down on a hassock made by two massive olive green pillows, one atop the other. Butter slid down the side of a scone spread onto the plate, and began to congeal while Elsie poured the tea. Elsie handed Mrs. Palmer a cup of tea with three lumps of sugar, but no scone, because Mrs. Blaine said they were too indigestible for her. Mrs. Palmer did not mind. She appreciated the sight of well-buttered scones anyway, and of healthy people like Mrs. Blaine eating them. She was offered a ginger biscuit, and declined it. 
Mrs. Blaine talked briefly to Elsie about her water pipes, about the reduced price of something at the butcher's this week, while Elsie stood with folded arms, leaning against the edge of the door, lighting in the frigid draft of Mrs. Palmer. Elsie was taking in all Mrs. Blaine's information about prices. Now it was kept up at the health store, on sale this week. Call me if you like something, Elsie said as usual, ducking out the door. Mrs. Blaine was sunk in her scones, leaning over so the dripping butter would fall on the stone floor and not on her skirt. Mrs. Palmer shivered and drew the covers up. Is your son coming? Mrs. Blaine asked in a loud, clear voice, looking straight at Mrs. Palmer. Mrs. Palmer did not know what Elsie had told Mrs. Blaine. She had told Elsie that he might come. That was all. I haven't heard yet. He's probably waiting to tell me the exact time he'll come, or to find out if he can or not. You know how it is in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Blaine said through a scone, as if of course she knew, having had a husband who had been in service. He's your only son and heir, I take it. My only one, Mrs. Palmer said. Married? Yes. Then, anticipating the next question, he has one child, a daughter, but she's still very small. Mrs. Blaine's eyes kept drifting to Mrs. Palmer's bed table, and suddenly Mrs. Palmer realized what she was looking at—her amethyst pin. Mrs. Palmer had worn it for a few days on her cardigan sweater. Until she had felt so bad, the pain ceased to lift her spirits and became almost tawdry, and she had removed it. That's a beautiful pin," said Mrs. Blaine. "Yes, my husband gave it to me years ago." Mrs. Blaine came over to look at it, but she did not touch it. The rectangular amethyst was set in small diamonds. She stood up, looking down at it with alert, bulging eyes. I suppose you'll pass it on to your son, or his wife. Mrs. Palmer flushed with embarrassment or anger. She hadn't thought to whom she would pass it on particularly. I suppose my son will get everything as my heir. I hope his wife appreciates it," Mrs. Blaine said, turning on her heel with a smile, setting her cup down in its saucer. Then Mrs. Palmer realized. That for the last few days, it was the pin that Mrs. Blaine had been looking at, when her eyes drifted over to the bed table. When Mrs. Blaine had gone, Mrs. Palmer picked up the pin and held it in her palm protectively. Her drawer box was across the room. Elsie came in, and Mrs. Palmer said, "Elsie, would you mind handing me that blue box over there?" "Certainly, ma'am," Elsie said, swerving from the tea tray. To the box on the top of the bookshelf. This the one? Yes, thank you. Mrs. Palmer took it, opened the lid, and dropped a pin on her pearls. She had not much jewelry, perhaps ten or eleven pieces, but each piece meant a special occasion in her life, or special period, and she loved them all. She looked at Elsie's blonde, homely profile as she bent over the tray, arranging everything. So that it could be carried out at once. That Mrs. Blaine said. Elsie shaking her head, not looking at Mrs. Palmer.
asked me if I thought your son was coming. How was I to know? I said, yes, I thought so. Now she stood with the tray, looking at Mrs. Palmer, and she smiled awkwardly, as if she had said perhaps too much. The trouble with Mrs. Bling is she's always nosing, if you'll pardon me saying so, asking questions, you know. Mrs. Palmer nodded, feeling too low just at that moment to make a comment. She had no comment anyway. Elsie, she thought, had passed it back and forth by the amethyst pin for days and never mentioned it, never touched it, maybe never even noticed it. Mrs. Palmer suddenly realized how much more she liked Elsie than she liked Mrs. Bling. The trouble with Mrs. Bling, she means well, but... Elsie floundered and jiggled the tray in her effort to shrug. It's too bad. Everyone's always saying it about her, she finished, as if this summoned it up and started out the door. But she turned with the door open. At tea, for instance, it's always get this and get that for her, as if she were a grand lady or something. A day ahead, she tells me, I don't see why she don't bring what she wants from the bakery now and then herself, if you know what I mean. Mrs. Palmer nodded. She supposed she knew. She knew. Mrs. Bling was like a nursemaid she had for a time for Gregory, like a divorcee she and her husband had known in London. She was like a lot of people. Mrs. Palmer died two days later. It was a day when Mrs. Bling came in and out, perhaps six times, perhaps eight. A telegram had arrived that morning from Gregory, saying he had at last wangled leave and would take off in a matter of hours, landing at a military field near Emington. Mrs. Palmer did not know if she would see him again or not. She could not judge her strength that far. Mrs. Blaine took her temperature and felt her pulse frequently, then pivoted on one foot in the room, looking about as if she were alone and thinking her own thoughts. Her expression was blankly pleasant, her peaches and cream cheeks aglow with health. Your son's due today, Mrs. Blaine half said, half asked, on one of her visits. Yes, Mrs. Palmer said. It was then dusk, though it was only at four in the afternoon. That was the last clear exchange she had with anyone, for she sank into a kind of dream. She saw Mrs. Blaine staring at the blue box on the top of the bookshelf, staring at it even as she shook the thermometer down. Mrs. Palmer called for Elsie and had her bring the box to her. Mrs. Blaine was not in the room then. This is to go to my son when he comes, Mrs. Palmer said. All of it, everything you understand. It's all written. But even though it was all itemized, a single piece like the amethyst pin might be missing, and Gregory would never do anything about it, maybe not even notice, maybe think she'd lost it somewhere in the last weeks and not reported it. Gregory was like that. Then Mrs. Palmer smiled at herself and also reproached herself. You can't take it with you. That was very true, and people who tried to were despicable and rather absurd. Elsie, this is yours, Mrs. Palmer said, 
and handed Elsie the amethyst pin. Oh, Mrs. Palmer, oh no, I couldn't take that, Elsie said, not taking it, and in fact retreating a step. You've been very good to me, Mrs. Palmer said. She was very tired, and her arm dropped to the bed. Very well, she murmured, seeing that it was really of no use. Her son came at six that evening, sat with her on the edge of her bed, held her hand, and kissed her forehead. But when she died, Mrs. Bling was closest, bending over her with her great round peaches and cream face and her green-gray eyes as expressionless as some fantastic reptiles. Mrs. Bling, to the last, continued to say crisp, efficient things to her, like, breathe easily, that's it, and not chilly, are you? Good. Somebody had mentioned a priest earlier, but this had been overruled by both Gregory and Mrs. Palmer. So it was Mrs. Bling's eyes she looked into as her life left her. Mrs. Bling so authoritative, strong, efficient, one might have taken her for God himself, especially since when Mrs. Palmer looked towards her son, she couldn't really see him, only a vague pale blue figure in the corner, tall and erect, with a dark spot at the top that was his hair. He was looking at her, but now she was too weak to call him. Anyway, Mrs. Blaine had shooed them all back. Elsie was also standing against the closed door, ready to run out for something, ready to take any water. Near her was the smaller figure of Lisa, who occasionally whispered something and was shushed by her mother. In an instant, Mrs. Palmer saw her entire life, her carefree childhood and youth, her happy marriage, the blight of the death of her other son at the age of ten, the shock of her husband's death eight years ago, but all in all a happy life, she supposed, though she could wish her own character had been better, purer, that she had never shown temper or selfishness, for instance. All that was past now, but what remained was a feeling that she had been imperfect, wrong, like Mrs. Blaine's presence now, like Mrs. Blaine's faint smile, wrong, wrong for the time and the occasion. Mrs. Blaine did not understand her. Mrs. Blaine did not know her. Mrs. Blaine somehow could not comprehend goodwill. Therein lay the flaw, and the flaw of life itself. Life is a long failure of understanding, Mrs. Palmer thought a long mistaken shutting of the heart. Mrs. Palmer had an amethyst pin in her closed left hand. Hours ago, sometimes in the afternoon, she had taken it with an idea of safekeeping, but now she realized the absurdity of that. She had also wanted to give it to Gregory directly and had forgotten. Her closed hand lifted an inch or so. Her lips moved, but no sound came. She wanted to give it to Mrs. Blaine. One positive and generous gesture she could still make to this essence of non-understanding, she thought. But now she had not the strength to make her want known. And that was like life, too. Everything a little too late. 
Mrs. Palmer's lids shut on the vision of Mrs. Blaine's glossy, attentive eyes. That was Yi and Lee reading *The Trouble with Mrs. Blaine: The Trouble with the World* by Patricia Highsmith. The story was published posthumously in *The New Yorker* in May of 2002, and included in the story collection *Nothing That Meets the Eye*, which was published by W. W. Norton later that year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence. A place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow the writer's voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Yian, what exactly is the trouble with Mrs. Blinn? She's nosy. She's demanding. She's greedy. She's reptilian, but she's not completely unsympathetic, or is she? No, I think, you know, she came into the house. She tried to make those small talks about the house,、mm-hmm. but there's something about Mrs. Blinn when the story says she's like a lot of people, and I think there's something about you cannot do anything about other people, and that's the trouble <laughs> with Mrs. Blinn. You cannot do anything. <laughs> you have to suffer them or endure them. I mean,、mm-hmm. especially in Mrs. Palmer's situation, she really can't take off. And you know, as a reader, you feel for her.、Mm-hmm. Do you think we should feel any sympathy for Mrs. Blinn? I mean, she had this husband who she lost too young, and she worshipped him, and she's faithful to his memory, so she can't be all bad. No, she can't. Except, you know, I when I say except, I feel very judgmental. I think she has taken on a role of God in some way. You know, she comes in, she she delivers these things, and it's quite scary to have to face a person like that. I think we do feel sympathy in the way that we are afraid to recognize ourselves in her. Because、mm-hmm. she's healthy, she's alive. Well, she's on the other side of death, and I, for one, feel really bad if I see myself in her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say the thing about her being like God. I mean, that's also what Patricia Highsmith says. You know, she's so efficient; one might have taken her for God Himself. And and that line stands out for me because it's such a strange vision of God, God the efficient one. <laughs> you know,、yes. <laughs> and I wonder what you think about sort of the role of God in religion in this story. I mean, we have Mrs. Palmer refusing the priest at the end, and her son jumps in and refuses a priest for her. So we we have to assume she's not religious. I mean, just a little background is I think Patricia Highsmith struggled with. Religion all her life and in much of her work, she also tried to deal with the 
subject of God or religion. And here, I, you know, it's interesting when we compare this story to the John McGowan story early on, that's about a priest mm-hmm. who's quite religious. And I felt the religious undertone of this story is similar to that, is the opposite of God. And God is still there, but somehow the story is fighting against God. Mm-hmm. It's so rare to have a story that's completely about dying that really doesn't talk about God in any way. It doesn't talk about the afterlife. What's very present is the materialistic, solid details of now. Right. And isn't that interesting? Because if we look at other stories, oftentimes the life deals with the materialistic things and the dying deals with the spiritual. But here it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. And yet the the materialistic things bring up something to do with the spirit. I don't if it's not religion then it's maybe this issue of morality. I mean Highsmith played so much with immorality or amorality in her work. And here I almost feel as though there's a moral to the story. Yes, and also I reread the uh, many Highsmith stories and I think moral issues seem to take a big role in her short stories. And many of her characters in short stories are much moral mm-hmm. than, I guess, Tom Ripley, you right. would say. Right, right. What doesn't get much less moral than Tom Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. But the thing, it's interesting thing is, you know, Mrs. Palmer is not spiritual, but she wished at the end of her life she could have been pure. And I find that fascinating, you know, what kind of purity she was talking about in that moment. And she wanted to have this gesture of generosity to give away that pin. But of course, you know, as readers, we're thinking, don't ever give that away. (laughs) (laughs) You want her to hold on to it and keep it in her hand? I don't know. I feel that Heismith is good at manipulating our reading. You know, Mm -hmm. every moment we have our own reaction and interpretation, and we don't want her to do that thing she might have done. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. There's that line, the line that sort of defines the story about life being this long failure of understanding, this long mistaken shutting of the heart, and Mrs. Palmer maybe wanting to open her heart in this final moment. And we should be cheering that on. So why aren't we? You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about the other character in the house, Elsie, the maid, Mm -hmm. and, and Mrs. Blaine, like many women, is a sea widow. <laughs> and you never, she never say Elsie is a sea widow or not, but there's a daughter, but there's never a husband. So you have a feeling, you know, there's an Elsie story, but Mrs. Palmer never really is curious or asks about that story either. So in the end, I think, you know, not opening up seems inevitable. Everybody's mm-hmm. fate in this story. Well, she does say, she says early on that Elsie isn't someone she could talk to. And she does lack curiosity about her. She makes a certain judgment about her. Isn't that a very cruel line about Elsie is willing but unintelligent? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that Mrs. Blynn is intelligent. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's, Mrs. Blynn seems to embody something, a, a negativity, a negative emotion, which is why it's so funny that she's defined as being like God. 
I mean, she embodies greed or, or perhaps it's something more, even more malevolent. Right. And Mrs. Spring is the one who really said, you know, after you die, will you pass this to your son? <laughs> so yeah. bluntly. And so, you know, not hiding her, her greed. And I thought that was well done. Gosh, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mrs. Palmer's penultimate gesture is to take a hold of that pen and keep it in her hand so that no one will get it. And then her ultimate gesture is to try to open her hand and give it to Mrs. Blinn. Do you think that that gesture counts for anything, even though it's not successful? Well, I mean, if we're not looking through the eyes of God, because God is maybe not in this story. <laughs> right. <laughs> who, well, can, then, who can then judge it? Well, then it's meaningful in that it's too late. <laughs> it's always like life. Everything is a little bit late. So mm-hmm. the futility of that gesture is interesting to me. That mm-hmm. Nothing really happens in the end. Right. And nothing, sort of nothing changes. You know, you can imagine after her death, these things happen, but nothing changes. Mrs. Splin goes on being this nasty woman, and Elsie does whatever she does for a living. So it's that coldness of nothing could be changed, I think, really seeping through, you know, at the end of the story. What do you think happens to the pin? Who takes it out of her hand? (laughs) (laughs) That's... I wonder if Mrs. Brain will take it out, but do you think? I don't know. (laughs) I thought she might have a maneuver to take it out, you know, Mm -hmm. while the others Mm -hmm. are not looking, which would count for, you know, the trouble with Mrs. Brain, the trouble with the world. Yeah. Well, then you wonder whether she would get any pleasure out of it. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to this issue of her being a sea widow, there's a... Do you think there's a reason that the house itself is called the Sea Maiden? Sea Maiden. It's called Sea Maiden. You know, we have no maiden here, but you wonder if Highsmith chose that name for it for a particular reason. I was actually looking at Highsmith's biography quickly today. I thought, gosh, you know, this woman had so many affairs. But this story is asexual. <laughs> There's no, yeah. There's there's no intimate relationship between you know man and woman or between even mother and daughter, so it's quite cold in that sea maiden. You you would imagine sea maiden, wet and cold and mm-hmm. without much warmth, and it's interesting also the couple when they first married they lived in sea maiden <laughs> right mrs Blinn and her husband yeah yeah yes and you would wonder wow what kind of marriage is that <laughs> right where the where the cold wind comes in yes another name in the story that interests me is is palmer um because a, a, a palmer is actually i mean the original meaning is a, is a pilgrim someone who's who's making a pilgrimage to the holy land and Mrs. Palmer's journey here is is maybe to a holy land or some form of that. At the same time, you have this image of palming something, you know, which is exactly what she does. She palms that pin, you know, yes. sort of <laughs> hiding your cards, hiding something in your hand. Yes. And it's such a double meaning that I wonder, it makes me wonder if all the other names have a meaning too. <laughs> I don't know. I think Princey, I wondered about the dog Princey because mm-hmm. in the household, that's the only male, it seems to me. Until the sun gets there, yeah, and he's just yeah, a sort of the... blurry figure in the background. Yes, and you don't get a sense the sun is close to the mother either. You know, there's that 
well, I will get there when I can. So it's it's not a close tie. Yeah, though it's partly her fault for not being yeah. urgent. Is that right? Yeah, right. There's the death of the other son. Mm-hmm. And, and the story just mentions one stroke, the death of another son at 10. But overall, it was a happy life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's such a lying sentence. All in all, a happy life. And you would yeah. say, all in all, a very sad life. Yeah. In terms of coldness, there's that wonderful idea that this entire town is resenting her for coming there to die. And she's thinking, but look, I'm giving you business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The man in the flower shop will make some money and the, and, the, and the grave digger will make some money. I know. For those things, you actually both really resent Mrs. Palmer and really respect her because mm-hmm. she has this logic that is cold logic. <laughs> yeah, she it is cold and yet she's much more likable than Mrs. Blinn. So it's, I guess we're choosing between two negativities here. <laughs> yes. And then the story, there's one moment in the story I thought was interesting. It says all of a sudden she realized she likes, uh, she liked Elsie much more than Mrs. Blinn. Mm-hmm. And every time I read to that line, I thought, oh, yes, I felt exactly the same way. <laughs> mm-hmm. We might like Elsie more from the beginning. Yes. Especially when she makes that that sort of comment about how Mrs. Blinn why can't she just get her own tea from the bakery? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You said earlier that you read Highsmith both as a writer of thrillers and crime stories and as a literary writer, which and, and those things aren't necessarily contradictory, but she herself once said that style, she said, style does not interest me in the least. And do you think that was disingenuous? I mean, obviously she has style. She has, uh, yes, I don't think it's disingenuous. I mean, partly I think she has she has a style, but that's that's sort of a by the way. I have a style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I think I think her, her focus was really about storytelling, and and if you look at her stories and her novels, I think especially her short stories, the the styles could be much more different from from one story to another but the storytelling the manipulation of readers and i think she does that all the time in all the stories like when you expect something bad and dramatic happen never nothing happens <laughs> and then when you feel so you know warm and fuzzy and something just comes from nowhere <laughs> <laughs> right it's true i mean you're waiting through this story for for Mrs. Flynn to make a grab yeah. or possibly even to administer some kind of injection. I mean, already <laughs> the shot she gives is going to make no difference and it hurts. But she could give one that, that would make a bad difference. <laughs> yes, and, and she would perfectly, you know, she would be run, get away with that murder mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, Mrs. Palmer is dying in any case. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt for her to do it at some time that's convenient for taking the pin. Yeah, and it would be out of mercy, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. That goes back to, you know, Mrs. Blinn is like God. There's something about we cannot predict her. Right. She has these incredible moments where she goes glassy. You know, her eyes go glassy, and she's sort of not there anymore. She's she's kind of absent from these these glassy eyes. What, what do you think is happening in those moments? I don't know. I wonder if she was thinking about her husband or something. And she, she, when she her eyes... 
go glassy. And oh, she also has that really absent-minded smile. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you would wonder what that smile means in that moment. And then there's a moment when Mrs. Palmer is dying and she is smiling to herself in thinking her own thoughts. But, you know, maybe thinking, oh, good, I'll get home in time for supper, you know. <laughs> I <laughs> Probably, you know, she probably has supper by herself. It's a boring supper. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think because we don't know, I think Mrs. Brain is a little bit unknowable. You know, we know Mrs. Palmer, we know Elsie, we know Lisa. But Mrs. Brain is mysterious. There's something about Mrs. Brain where she's, she's almost not a human you know, she's she's like this kind of robot creature. So you, you yeah. can observe it, right? Or or maybe yeah. she's an animal, like a snake, like a reptile. But you can observe it, but you can't really judge it. You can just yeah. try to understand it. That, that's really scary. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> there, and in the end, there's nothing you can do. A lot of people are like Mrs. Blinn. <laughs> right. All you yeah. can do is, is be generous yourself and give them the pin. Don't you think if Mrs. Palmer, before her death, if she would have given the pin to Mrs. Brin, she would hate herself for doing that. Right. It's something that has to be done at the very last minute. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So she would not have the moment to regret, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel that I'm a mean woman, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait. When you're dying, you'll be generous. Yes. Maybe so. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Ian. Thank you, Deborah. Ian Lee is the author of the novels The Vagrants and Kinder Than Solitude. Her story collection, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award in 2005. Patricia Highsmith was the author of Strangers on a Train, The Blunderer, and Little Tales of Misogyny, among other books. Her novel, The Price of Salt, has been made into a new movie titled Carol, starring Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, which will be released in September. You can download 97 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>